The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Exodus 3, verses 1 to 8. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. My name is Shane, and yeah, I get to preach this morning as we continue this series in Exodus. Uh, A few weeks ago, Jimmy kicked off the series looking at how God was orchestrating all these things behind the scenes. As things looked like they were going from bad to worse for God's people, God was actually using all things for His glory and ultimately our good. And then last week, Jimmy spoke about the fact that we met Moses, and he was going on this journey trying to figure out who he was trying to discover where he belonged. He wasn't really part of the Egyptians. He didn't really fit with his people, the Hebrews. And now he's in Midian, wandering around, taking care of someone else's flock, right? And so today we're going to look at chapters 3 and 4, as Moses meets God for the first time. And there's this interaction that he has with God. Well, I wonder, have you guys ever been asked to do something that you just didn't want to do? I'm sure this has happened to a lot of us. Maybe your wives have asked you to go to the gym. I know mine has. Maybe your parents have asked you to clean your room or pick up some of your clothes. I remember there's there's a lot of incidents where I've been asked to do things I didn't want to do. In particular, uh, when I was 19, I got probably the coolest job I've ever had. I got to manage a trampoline park. Right? And it just sounds crazy because it was crazy. And I remember getting this job, managing this trampoline park, there were so many cool aspects about it. But one thing I hated doing, being a manager of a trampoline park, was firing people. I remember this one day, the, the boss came up to me and he said, Shane, I need you to, uh, to fire these two boys. Now, these two boys were my friends, and I really didn't want to fire them, but what they did was, was pretty bad, so they deserved it, so it was all good. But I remember saying to him, hey, look, I, I actually, I don't want to fire these people. Like, I've, I've never done that before. And he's like, well, you're the manager, Shane. It's, it's your job. Remember, I kind of threw a few excuses at him, like, hey, I wouldn't know how to go about it. I don't want to be insensitive. Like, what do I say? I don't know. And he just said, look, I'll teach you, I'll coach you, but you are the manager. I need you to do this. And the the, the more that I tried to resist this firing people, uh, the more that he kind of was just like, hey, Shane, I'm paying your wage. If you want to keep your job, you've got to do this. And so eventually I gave in and I had to fire these, these two boys, my friends. And yes, they deserved it. But it was still something that I just didn't want to do. And I resisted it as much as I could. 
And we look at this story today as God comes to Moses and he's calling Moses to do something. And we kind of get the impression that Moses just really doesn't want to do what God is calling him to do. And as we look at this text, chapters 3 and 4, as we walk through, we'll see Moses come back to God with a few questions and then a few excuses. So there's five real questions and excuses that we're going to look at as to why Moses just isn't the man for the job, and that's what he's saying to God. And ultimately, that through this, we will see God respond to Moses, to show Moses why Moses can have faith in him, why Moses can trust him, and ultimately, who God is And so we're going to kick it off in uh, chapter 3. I want to start at verse 6. God is burning in this bush. He just appeared to Moses. He called Moses, and then he says this. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard the cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, alone flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So right from the beginning, God comes to Moses and reveals himself as the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what he's doing when he reveals himself in this way is really two things. Firstly, he is reminding Moses that he is the covenant-making God that he is the God who made the covenant with Abraham back in Genesis, that one day he will be a great nation, more numerous than the stars, and that this nation would be a blessing to all other nations, and that one day they would inherit this promised land. This was the God that, Abraham, uh, this was the God that Moses was talking to in this bush. But the other thing that God was doing, revealing himself in this way, was saying, hey, I'm the God of your fathers. Moses, you were a part of my people. Like we learned last week, Moses had been trying to figure out where he belonged, and right here God is saying, Moses, you're a part of my people. You belong to me. And then from the very outset, God lays out the plan, and he says, I have come to deliver my people. Right From the very beginning, God says, I am the one to deliver my people. He lets Moses know, I am the key player in this deliverance. And yet, Moses just doesn't seem as keen as we think he should be. God has just said, I'm here to deliver your people out of slavery. I've heard their cries. But Moses, he's probably 80 at this point, comfortable. He's been married, got a kid. He's just taking care of someone else's sheep, right? And so he comes up with these excuses. And let's have a look at the first question that Moses poses to God. We see in verse 11, he says to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Who am I? Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here because Jimmy touched on it last week, but Moses is asking this question, who am I? And part of this question that Moses is asking, it's a legitimate question. Because at the time, Pharaoh was arguably the greatest power. His empire was bigger than any other empire. And God was saying to Moses, I want you just to march into his palace and demand that you take two million or so of his slaves to wander around the desert until you find the milk and the honey. Right? This is what God was saying to Moses. And so Moses' question, who am I to do that? Like, who am I to do that? Like, it just seems absurd. 
And then God responds, but I will be with you. Who am I to do this, God, but I will be with you? Like, it seems like a strange response, doesn't it? Like, it doesn't even seem like that's an answer to the question, and yet I would argue that that's the truest answer that we could ever get to the question of who am I? That God is with us. Who am I? Well, we should be asking, whose are we? And God is saying, you are mine. I am with you. Like Jimmy said last week, our identity is tied up with God's identity. And he is with us. And this is the story of the Bible. As God dwells with his people, we see this right in Genesis, the beginning, when God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden, all the way at Revelation, when we will dwell with him forever. And then ultimately in Jesus. But we see Emmanuel, God with us, come and walk amongst us. The one who heard our cries and our suffering and entered in. And so God says to Moses, I will be with you. But yet, this is not enough for Moses. He's got more questions to ask. And so we read in verse 13, If I come to my people of Israel and say to them, God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So pretty much cool. Who am I? I'll be with you, Moses. Okay, well then, who are you? Like, who am I to say that you are? And then we get some of the most studied few words in the entire Bible as God reveals his name to Moses. God says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. Now we could really stop here and spend the rest of the sermon trying to unpack the weight and the depth of what it means when God reveals himself as I am who I am. But we see this as the personal name of God, Yahweh. It's the first time God has revealed himself as Yahweh to Moses. So far, we've just known him as God, this kind of powerful, overarching God who works in the background and moves things, and now we meet him as the personal God, Yahweh. As he says to Moses, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. And if we had to try and wrap our heads around what it means when we say, I am who I am, because like, that doesn't work with our English. Like, we define ourselves by things like, I am a teacher, I am a pastor, I am tall, right? But God is self-defining. So when he says, I am who I am, pretty much what he's saying is, he's saying, I am self-defining. I am eternal, unchanging. I exist as nothing has ever existed before. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and he is all-present with us. I am who I am, or I have been who I have always been, and I will be who I always will be. Moses, go and tell them that I am has sent you. And we will see this name, Yahweh. We'll see it in our Bibles as the Lord, all capitalized. And this is Yahweh, God's personal name, God's nearness. The name he uses when he wants to reveal that he's close to his people. And we'll also see when we get to the New Testament. We see Jesus, when he's talking about his character and his nature to his disciples and those around him, Especially in the Gospel of John, he'll use a few of these I am statements, like I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life. There's seven of these I am statements that Jesus uses. And then in John 8, right towards the end, Jesus is talking to these Jews and they're kind of having an argument with Jesus and they're saying, oh, you know, why, why should we listen to you? And then Jesus says, well, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. 
And they say, you're not even 50 years old. What are you talking about? How have you seen Abraham? And then in John 8, 58, Jesus responds with, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. As Jesus declares to his disciples and those around him that he is Yahweh, he is the one true God. And this is good news for us. Because 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So why can Moses have faith in God? Because of who he is. Because he is the great I am. He is unchanging. So when he says he will do something, he will do it. And then we see for the rest of chapter 3, God just lays out the game plan. He just, just says exactly what is going to happen. And I just want to pick up a few verses for the rest of chapter 3 and just listen to the way God talks. Verse 17, he says, I promise that I'll bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt, and they will listen to your voice. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do to it. After that, he will let you go, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." Like, who can talk like this? Like, who can say, I will, I promise, it shall happen? Like, no one, apart from the great I am, apart from Yahweh himself. Like, I can say to my wife, hey, I'm going to be home at 2 p.m. today. Right, there's a crash on the highway, not a chance. Like, there's just nothing I can do about it. But when God says that he will do something, it will happen. We can trust his promises because of who he is. And this is true for Moses. And so God just lays out the game plan for Moses, and yet he is still unsure. And so we get to chapter 4, verse 1. And now Moses goes from his questioning to, to his excuses. And he says, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Now, we literally just read in chapter 3, God says, they will believe you, they will listen to you, and then Moses is like, nah, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to me. Like, it just seems crazy, right? But we, when we look at Moses' background, we understand what had just happened. We see he's asking this question because of his past. We read last week that Moses had already tried to do this. He already thought of himself as a bit of a rescuer and tried to save his people, ended up murdering an Egyptian, burying him in the sand, and then when his people found out, he ran away. Right? Moses had already tried to rescue his people in his own strength and failed. And so he's saying to God, hey, like, you know what I've done. If I go to them now, they are not going to believe me. Like They're just, they're just not going to believe me. And I wonder if we do this sometimes. Like we know God has said one thing, and yet we question whether that thing is really true. Like, God, I know you said that you'll provide everything I need, but I just lost my job and I'm freaking out right now and I don't know what to do. Or maybe, God, I know you said that you are enough for me and I can find satisfaction in you alone. And yet there's one thing in my life that I really want, that I'm longing for and I need it or I'm going to be unhappy. Or maybe for some of us, God, I know you said that I'm forgiven. But if only you knew what I had done. Or maybe if only you know what I continue to do. See, sometimes we know what God says, but yet we struggle to believe it. As our faith fades, 
See, I haven't always been a Christian. I became a Christian when I was 18 years old. And sometimes I think if, if only they knew what I used to be like. Like I didn't, I didn't murder anybody and bury him in the sand. But, but still, sometimes I think if only they knew what I was like, they definitely wouldn't give me a microphone. They probably wouldn't even let me in those doors. And then I remember, no, my past doesn't define me. God defines me. What I have done in the past doesn't define me. Who God says defines me. And he says that he is with me. And that he is enough for me. So maybe you're here this morning and you feel like, oh, God couldn't possibly use me for anything great. God loves to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. This is the story of the Bible. Look at Moses. Look at Paul. He didn't just murder one person. He murdered a bunch of God's people. And yet, one of the greatest missionaries, if not the greatest missionary the world has ever seen, apart from Jesus. That God desires to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And because of Moses' doubt in this area, God gives him these three signs. And so we read these three signs that God gives to Moses. Verse 2, he says, The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. And again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. So God gives, us the, God gives Moses these three signs to authenticate to Moses and to the Israelites that God had actually appeared to him. And now we just don't have the time today to really flesh all these out but if we had to try and explain what God was doing with these signs, we need to realize that they're signs, so they point to something. And so if we look real quickly at the serpent, uh, most commentators and scholars believe that it represented just the power of war that Pharaoh had. And then God just says, Moses, just pick it up. He picks the snake up back into a staff. Like, easy. And we look at leprosy. It seems to be this disease that for centuries, no matter what the Egyptians threw at it, they couldn't heal it. They just could not find a cure for it. And God says to Moses, just put your hand in your cloak, bro. It's fine. Back out, healed like that. And then when we look at the Nile. The Nile was the livelihood for all the Egyptians. And in a second, God could take it away. So what God is doing here with these three signs is pointing to something. The fact that not only is he with Moses, but he is able and powerful above all things to do what he says he's going to do. He is reminding Moses, yeah, I get it, that Pharaoh's big. But on the one hand, you've got this Pharaoh who can do a few things and has a big army and then the great I am. Like there just isn't even a battle. And so God gives these signs to Moses. Hey, I am able to do what I'm saying I'm going to do. Trust me, believe me. See, the Lord is calling us all to have faith in him, to trust in him. He might not be calling us to rescue millions of God's people out of slavery, 
But he is calling us to take the gospel, the good news to our neighbours, to love those around us, to serve our families, to serve one another. And he wants us to remember that he is with us and that as we preach the gospel, he will do what only he can do, rescue those around us from the slavery of sin and bring them back into his family. And all Moses had to do was just give up what was in his hand. Just have faith and obedience. And so my question to you this morning would be like, what's, what's in your hand? And more practically, who has God placed around you? Who has God put in your life? Where has God placed you? Where you live, where you work? That through your obedience, he might reveal his power to save. Let's trust in God this morning that he is able to do what he says he will do. But then Moses is still not convinced, right? You're like, come on, Moses, what more do you need? And so Moses says in verse 10, another excuse. He said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow to speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf? or seeing, or blind, is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I'll be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. So Moses' next excuse is like, okay, cool, you can do this. I just can't talk, Lord. Like, I'm not good at speech. And we don't know if this was true or not. We don't know if Moses had anything wrong with his speech. We read in Acts 7.22 that Moses was educated in all wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in speech and action. So whether there was something wrong with Moses' speech or not, maybe he's been wandering around talking to sheep for 40 years and he just, like he just doesn't have it anymore. Either way, God wasn't surprised. God wasn't like, oh, Moses, why didn't you lead with that? Like I've just been burning in a bush for a few hours and I just did all these signs. Like, why didn't you lead with the fact that you've got to stutter? No, God wasn't surprised by this. He says, who makes man's mouth? Like, who makes him mute or deaf or blind or seeing? Is it not I, the Lord? Like, Moses still didn't understand that God was the main player in his rescue mission, not Moses. That God didn't need Moses, but he wanted to use Moses because he loved him. And so as Moses throws out this excuse to God, we see God responds with, hey, I make man's mouth. Just go. I will speak through you. And maybe some of us here this morning, I know this is probably the excuse that I would resonate with the most. As when I know I should be sharing the gospel with my friends, my colleagues, those in my neighborhood. I wonder, oh, I just don't have the right words. Like, I just don't know how to articulate it the best. I just don't know. I don't want to say something bad that, that maybe they'll think I'm even more of a freak, Right? I don't know if you guys feel that or it's just me. But God is saying, hey, it's not you who does this. Who made man's mouth? It's, it's me. Like who makes him mute or deaf or blind or seeing? So pretty much who lets the words come out of your mouth? Who stops the wrong words from going into their ears? And then who opens the eyes of the blind? It's not you. Like let's breathe here this morning. It's not us. Our job is just to share the gospel. That God might rescue his children. That God might call them home. And the good news is he promises that he will do that. 
and we can trust in His promise because of who He is. And then Moses, with his final excuse. And this is probably the most real Moses has been this whole time. He says, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be with your mouth, and you shall be as a God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. So Moses just comes down, he's blaming like, hey, look, to be honest, I just really don't want to do it. Send someone else. Like, I'm just, I'm just not the right man for the job. Send someone else. And then we read, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And we need to ask, what is actually going on here? Like, why has God been so gracious this whole time, answering his questions and his excuses, and now he's angry? Like, is, it just, is he just, like, sick of the nagging and nagging and nagging and nagging, and then he's just like, oh, fine, whatever, and just gives in? He's just, like, so frustrated, like some parents in the room, right? No, God's not like that. So what is happening here? God welcomes our questions. Legitimate or not, he welcomes our seeking and our questions. But what God doesn't welcome is blatant disobedience. What God doesn't welcome is you just saying no, straight to his face. And so in a moment we see the anger of the Lord kindle against Moses, we also see grace and mercy as he says, what about your brother? He's going to come. He'll be glad to see you. Let's use him. And take the staff and go. <laughs> like, come on, Moses. Like God's grace in this moment. See, we think that God gave in in using his brother. But if you read further on the story, all he adds is trouble and trouble. But God says, hey, Moses, I want you to go. So here is your brother. And then Moses finally gives in. He's done with excuses at this point. And we read that he goes back to his father-in-law's place. He grabs his wife and he grabs his kids. See, Moses has been making excuse after excuse after excuse to God as to why he wasn't the man for for the job. Like, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? I'm not great at these things. And God is saying, it's not about who you are, it's about who I am. It's not about what you've done, it's about what I will do and what I have already done for you. And it's not about how good you are at things, because I am the great I am. God was calling Moses to have faith in him, to place his trust in him because of who he was. And then we get to what is arguably my favorite section of this entire two chapters, You'll see it come on the screen. You'll understand why I just absolutely love these two verses. Verse 24. No, we don't need a sense of this for anyone. It's all good. At the lodging place on the way, the Lord met with him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. 
Cool, should we pray? Now, there's a a lot of weird stuff going in on here, right? Some circumcision, some throwing of foreskin. Like, like what is going on? I don't know. Like, (laughs) there's a lot of disagreement about what is happening here, but what we do know is God had just spent this whole time revealing himself to Moses, calling him to be on this rescue mission, doing signs and convincing him that, no, Moses, you are the man for the job. And yet he just comes and trying to kill him. Like, why, why, would, why would he do that? Why would he waste this time only if he was going to come and kill Moses? But what we need to see is, is really two things that are evident. One, if God wanted Moses dead, he would be dead. Right? It's not that Zipporah just acted quickly enough. She did act quickly, but God's God. So if God wanted him dead, he would be dead. But there was something else God was trying to teach Moses. And second, what we see is Zipporah knew exactly what needed to happen. Her son needed to be circumcised, right? Why? Like, why was this so important? That God would risk Moses' life for it. Well, God had just revealed himself to Moses as this covenantal God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had just drawn a pretty stark line in the sand between one side of judgment and death and on the other side, a part of God's people of love and grace and freedom and life. And to define what side you're on, to define if you're a part of God's covenantal people, God gave them the sign of circumcision. So God couldn't send a man to proclaim that the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God had heard the cries of his covenant people and that he was going to rescue them when the man that he was sending didn't even resemble as being a part of his covenantal people. See, God was reminding Moses in this moment that life is only found in a covenant relationship with God. That true life is only found in being under the covenant that God had made with his people. And so we don't know why Moses hadn't circumcised his son, but Zipporah obviously knew that's what needed to happen. And so he throws the foreskin at his feet and says, you're surely a bridegroom of blood. There is a pretty stark line in the sand. One side there is judgment and death. The other side there is life and grace. And the good news for us here this morning is God has made a new covenant. God has sent a new rescuer that didn't shy away from the task, he didn't make excuses, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That he walked completely obedient to the Father's call, even to the point of death. Jesus has made a new way for us. Because of his life, because of his death on the cross for you and I, because of his resurrection, he welcomes us in to be a part of his covenantal people. As we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are a part of a new covenant. This is the good news of the gospel. On one side there is judgment and death. For those who are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We have life everlasting. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to invite you, put your faith and trust in Jesus. Not blindly, but because of who he's revealed himself to be. Because he is what he has done for you on the cross. He loves you. 
I love Jimmy last week when he said the deep inner theology is the fact that Jesus loves us and this we know because the Bible tells us so. That God loves you. And we have so much to celebrate here this morning as we are found to be a part of God's covenant people. That we receive life and life to the full if we place our trust in him. See, it didn't matter that Moses was about to pull off the greatest rescue mission the world has ever seen because he couldn't earn his own salvation. God is saying, life is only found in me. And we can trust Jesus. We can have assurance that Jesus will do what he says he will do because of who he is. And then we read for the rest of chapter 4 that God actually does what he says he's going to do. That it actually happens. Like Moses goes and he does the signs to the Israelites and they listen to him and they believe. And then they go and they worship God. And so the call for us here this morning is let's place our faith in Jesus, place our trust in Jesus as he calls us, not just into his family, but to go, to preach the good news that he might rescue the rest of his children home. We can trust God because he's all-powerful, he is all-knowing, and he is with us. Like he doesn't just send Moses, he says, come that I might send you. Like he is going before Moses. So we can trust him this morning. As we continue to think about what's in our hands, as we continue to, to think about what God has done in our life and those people that he has placed around us, I want to encourage you, let's, let's have a look for those opportunities this week. Then we'll be able to share the good news of the gospel. Then we'll be able to tell the story of how God has rescued and redeemed us and that we are now a part of his covenantal people. This is the greatest rescue mission the world has ever seen, as Jesus rescues us here this morning. And the cool thing about that is we get to experience the joy of playing a part in God's redemptive plan. Like There is so much joy to be found in being obedient to God's calling as he sends us, that ultimately, like the Israelites, we would then come together and worship our great King because of who he is, because he is worthy of our praise and that we can trust him. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.